In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. In today's opening collect, we besought the Lord to behold us, his family, for whom the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross. The Lord Jesus was willing to be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners for us. What does it mean to be willing? It means to use one's will, to act, to be active. Jesus Christ is the primary actor in the crucifixion. He is the one who lays down his life. As he says, no one takes it from him. No one would have any power to do anything unless he allowed it. He is willing. After the foot washing and the Last Supper, which we remembered last night on the Monday Thursday service, Jesus led his disciples across the Kidron Brook to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knows that he will be betrayed. He walks willingly into the trap set by the chief priests and the elders. When the soldiers come, Jesus steps forward and asks, Whom do you seek? When they ask for Jesus of Nazareth, he replies, I am he, knowing that he will be arrested. He does this twice. When Peter steps in with a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, Jesus tells Peter to put away his sword because he is willing to drink the cup that the Father has given him. Here is the crux of the matter, the central truth of the cross. Jesus and his Father are one. Their wills are united because Jesus' human will perfectly aligns with his divine will and the Father and the Son are one in unity. The Trinity is at the heart of the crucifixion. God is three in one. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. They are three persons in one. There are lots of Greek words that theologians throughout the ages have used to describe this unity. Hypostasis, homoousios, as our Good Shepherd School students are hopefully finding out in their study of Greek, it's a terrifically precise language, perfectly suited for theology and philosophy. For us in our daily lives, the practical implication of complex theological terms and Greek words is very simple. God sacrifices himself for us. Jesus, God himself, is willing to be betrayed into the hands of sinners and die to save us from the consequences of our sin. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus describes in detail the workings of the Trinity during the Last Supper after the foot washing. Jesus tells his disciples, and he tells us, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. 
Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father in me. The Father who dwells in me does the works. So Jesus and the Father are one. They are the triune God, who with the Holy Spirit exists eternally and acts as one. Why does this reality of the Trinity matter so much in considering the crucifixion? Why does Jesus spend so much time describing the Trinity on his last night with his disciples? And why has the Church persevered in teaching the doctrine of the Trinity through 20 centuries, in spite of the difficulty that our human minds have in comprehending that mysterious aspect of our faith? Because it is only in understanding that Jesus and the Father are one through the reality of the Trinity that the crucifixion reveals to us its most important aspect. The only sacrifice which leads to our salvation is God's self-sacrifice. Our sin and our separation from God are so great that sacrifice is required to close that gap, to redeem us from our sins. And the magnitude of our sin is such that we can never restore that relationship. We can never repay the debt. Only God can do that. And so he does. In the crucifixion, God sacrificed himself for us. Jesus acted upon the cross. He willed his own death. Jesus brought to completion the plan of salvation laid out from before the foundation of the world. When he had received the sour wine upon the cross, he said, It is finished. And he bowed up his head, and he gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. He gave up his spirit. What is finished in that moment? Many things. The reign of sin and death is finished. Jesus' earthly life is finished. In Jesus' death, the miracle of the Incarnation came to an end. Jesus, fully man and fully God, lived an earthly life. It began in the Annunciation, the moment when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary and she became the Theotokos, a Greek word meaning bearer of God. God, as Jesus, lived among men, among us, sharing our sorrows and joys of our earthly, bodily, physical life. He made sacred and holy once more the physical world that had been groaning in sin and suffering since the fall. He brought near the kingdom of God, where we are invited to live with God, as in the garden, through trust and relationship with God through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. In the Annunciation, God became man. In the Crucifixion, God died so that man might become one with God. In the Crucifixion, God sacrificed himself to redeem a fallen and broken world, including our fallen and broken humanity. Sacrifice is necessary to atone for sin. Why? Because sin is real. The most cursory glance at the morning paper, or any encounter with our fellow human beings, makes that clear. There's sin and suffering and darkness all around us, and we are desperate to escape it. We human beings are desperate to escape pain and sorrow and despair. Pagan religions knew this to be true, they sacrificed animals. Some even sacrificed human beings in the desperate hope that this blood would remove sin 
and ease the suffering and prevent death. Sometimes it's tempting to deny the magnitude and reality of sin. I'm not that bad. Things really aren't that bad. Yes, things are that bad. We really are that bad. The pagans who sacrificed bulls and goats and even people were not wrong about the problem. Sin and death are real. They were not wrong about the cure. Sacrifice is needed. But what kind of sacrifice? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God, whom we know through revelation by God himself to be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This one true God does not desire the sacrifice of animals or people or any earthly blood or sacrifice at all. These can never remove sin. Only the self-sacrifice of God himself can bring us back into relationship with him. Only that atoning sacrifice can bring us into his will. From us, the sacrifice that God desires is a broken and contrite heart, a sacrifice of our wills that they may be renewed and joined with his will. For it is in his perfect will that we find salvation. We see this in the binding of Isaac, the greatest evidence of faith in the life of Abraham, our father in faith. The Lord had promised Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the grains of sand, outnumber the stars. The Lord had visited Abraham and Sarah and given them the gift of a child miraculously born in their old age. Abraham and Sarah had obeyed the Lord, leaving home and family, journeying to a place they did not know. They had lived by faith for a long time long time. Then the Lord asked Abraham to take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Child sacrifice was not unknown. The peoples all around that region practiced child sacrifice to their gods. But this was Isaac, the child of promise. Isaac, the fondest dream of Abraham's old age, who would inherit all that he had and carry on his name. And Abraham, again the father of faith, does as God asks. He takes his son, his only son, Isaac, up on the mountain. Isaac even carries the wood for it meant for his own destruction. Isaac is innocent. He asks his father where the lamb is for the sacrifice, and Abraham tells him that God will provide. Abraham goes so far as to take up the knife. Then God does provide. In that moment when he knows that Abraham will hold nothing back, God provides a ram in a thicket. For the sacrifice of Isaac would not have been salvific. In this story, God demonstrates that he does not desire the sacrifice of the helpless and innocent. The story prefigures the Passover in Egypt years later and prefigures the crucifixion even later. It reveals the inadequacy of any sacrifice that we human beings could make on our own behalf. Only God can act to save us. And he did. And he still does. Christ is both Abraham and Christ is Isaac. He is the great high priest, and he is also the Paschal, the Passover lamb. Only Jesus Christ, God himself, can destroy sin and death. Sometimes the world would tell us that it's okay to sacrifice others on our behalf, like Caiaphas did, right? One man, it's expedient for one man to die for all. Or Spock, it's better for one man to die than everyone. But that's false. 
No sacrifice of innocence can be salvific for us. Only the self-sacrifice of God is salvific. The Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners and to suffer death upon the cross for us so that we could be in him now and for eternity. What are we willing to do with that gift of salvation and eternal life in Christ?